Today we're going to be looking at two different scripture passages, and you guys can turn there now, either in your Bibles or on your devices. We will be in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and you can put your thumb in there, and then we're also going to be in John's letter to the churches in 1 John. So we're going to be in those two passages there. And so today we celebrate Palm Sunday, which if you're like me and grew up in the church, that just always meant palm branches, and you didn't really know what was going on. So Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter, which is leading up to Good Friday, which is this coming Friday, when we will celebrate Jesus' death for us. But then that's also, as we already heard through the kids' catechism and Scott's announcements, that's also leading up to Easter, which is next Sunday. But Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate and remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding a donkey, and people waved palm branches, they laid down their robes, and they worshipped Jesus as this coming king. And so lots of churches, maybe even churches you grew up with, it'd be fun to do a poll, will have palm branches. And during their singing, they'll wave palm branches. And believe it or not, Scott wanted to do that today. But I said, no, let's, let's not do that. Just kidding, he did not say that. So on Palm Sunday, though, we celebrate Jesus coming in as a conquering king. But here's the question. Where did his conquering happen? Where did his victory come? His victory was at the cross. His victory was at the cross where he defeated Satan, sin, and death. And so today, on Palm Sunday, we want to discuss the death of Jesus. And then next Sunday, we will look at the resurrection. So today, we're going to remember something that happened in the past... And I'm going to talk to you about some of those details, but is that all we're doing? Just remembering so we don't forget? Like, oh, guys, I need to tell you about the crucifixion because I'm worried you're going to forget. Is that the point of what we're doing? You see, there's lots of things that we can remember as a fact, but it doesn't necessarily impact our life. You know what I mean? For example, you might know the Declaration of Independence was officially adopted on what day? July 4th, 1776. That's a fact that happened that we try to remember. But does July 4th, 1776 function in your everyday consciousness? Are you consciously thinking, how can I live my life in light of July 4th, 1776? Does it change the way you make decisions? Does it change the way you decide how to relate to people? Does it change the way you decide what to do with relationships? Most likely not because it's not what I want to call a functional reality. It's not a reality that functions in your life and changes your everyday thinking. A functional reality is something that's true, but it changes the way you think and live. We all have a lot of functional realities, and we might not even think about it. Let me give you one example. A red light at an intersection is a functional reality. It will change the way you think and live and operate. Another functional reality would be being part of a church, being in a relationship with another person, paying your taxes, reminder, being in relationships with a spouse, with a friend, whether dating, having friendships, those all are functional things that change the way you think and operate how you make decisions. So how do we allow the cross of Jesus to become a functional reality in our life, to change the way that we think and operate and see the world. Today, 
we're going to look at a portion of John's gospel where he talks about the death of Jesus. And then we're going to look at his letter to the churches where he says, here's what that death means. Here's how it changes. Here's how it's supposed to be a functional reality. So it's so as I said, we're going to be in John chapter 19, where John is describing the death of Jesus. And I'm just going to read two sections of this passage. We're going to start in verse 16. And if you don't have it there yet, even for those of you online, you can just listen. John 19, starting in verse 16. So he, meaning Pilate, delivered him, speaking of Jesus, over to be crucified. They took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Skip down to verse 25. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Referring to John. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So there's John's account of the death of Jesus on the cross. So now, flip over towards the end of your Bible to the letter of 1 John chapter 2, and this is what John said to the churches. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we come together as your people, those of us here gathered in this room, in this building, and those of us even uh, with us virtually and even connected by the union we have in the Spirit, those of us with us online. Jesus, we thank you that today we can pause right now from the chaos, from all the things that would be screaming for our attention and Jesus, we want to hear from you. We want your spirit to speak to us. We want to connect the realities of your death to our life, the realities of Palm Sunday and the celebration of your victory to the things that we wrestle with, to the things that engage our mind and our attention, even right now. So Jesus, we ask for your help. I ask for your help with this sermon. Thank you, Jesus, that because your word is our confidence, we can be fully confident that you will meet us today and even these next couple minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple weeks ago, I was on a vacation and I read a book called The Kite Runner. Has anybody here heard of The Kite Runner? 
Show of hands, some of you. There's a picture of it. You've probably seen it on every bestseller book read list. I would recommend it. It is a hard book to read. There are some really heavy things in it. But it is one of the single best novels I have ever read. So I would encourage you to read it. And I promise you, if you read it, or if you have read it, I will buy you a cup of coffee so we can sit and talk about it. It is a fantastic book. So the challenge is out there. But in one part of that book, there is a scene where a young Afghani boy, set in Afghanistan, it starts in the 70s, a young boy witnesses a tragedy, something horrific that happens, and he does nothing. He doesn't tell anyone. He tries to forget what he saw. He tries to bury it inside of himself. But his whole life, he's haunted by this. His lack of initiative, his sheer unwillingness to make things right. He seeks to make atonement through forgetting, through doing good, through moving to a new place. He gives himself over to finding ways to be rid of that guilt, rid of his shame, rid of his self-hatred. And it's an amazing and even powerful story. It has huge glimpses of redemption and new creation in it. But can you relate to that at all? That idea of self-atonement, of I have done wrong and something's got to be made right. The idea of self-atonement, believe it or not, consumes most of how you live your life. For some of us, we seek to block out things from our past, memories of what we have done, things that cause us fear. For some people, we try to atone for all of our bad by, let's just do lots of good. Let's just be really generous. Let's give money to all the things. I just like to do good, a lot of people say. That's often rooted in self-atonement. And what's interesting is this is not just limited to the church. This is all of humanity that's doing this. Today, in record numbers, people are claiming to not believe in God, to not need church, and yet, they still live incredibly religiously by seeking to make penance, by seeking to find new religious experiences. We all, whether Christian or not, are seeking to cover for our lack, whether through good deeds, through forgetting our self-hatred, through substances, through burying our shame and guilt in our work, our money, our adventurous lives, or even our sexual obsessions. Even those who claim to not need Christianity or not even believe that there is a God, they're truthfully very religious, but their temples and churches just look different than ours. They give the same sacrificial offerings to atone for themselves, but for some it might be a gym, for others, a shopping mall. For others, living for retirement, finding the next luxury, or even the next razor on the arm, or the next binger. Christianity and church attendance may have fallen out of vogue these days, but every single person in the world is looking for two things. We're looking for an advocate, and we're looking for atonement, for a way to be rid of our sin. And we all do this. But what's amazing is that at the cross of Jesus, we have an advocate. And we have a true atonement. And this is what John is saying to the church in 1 John chapter 2. He is saying, church, you have that advocate. Church, you have that atonement. So let's dig into this. 
in this letter of 1 John, which that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning, before I say anything else, I want to encourage you to even right now in your own heart, or you could tell somebody, I want you all to read 1 John this week. It will take you 15 minutes. I looked it up online, some stats. The average reader it will take 16 minutes to read 1 John. So just find 16 minutes, sit down, and just read it. John writes about how the love of God is revealed through the death of Jesus. And now that gets worked out in a community of Jesus followers. He says, through the love of God, we can now love one another because Jesus' death is the ground zero for how we know that God loves us, but it's intended to do something in our life. Remember from the beginning, it's not just a fact that we remember, but it changes how we think and live and operate. So this morning, that's where we're going to spend a couple minutes, looking at the death of Jesus, how that's a functional reality, both for our advocacy and for needing an atonement, needing a covering. So let's first talk about this idea of advocacy as a functional reality, the idea that Jesus is our advocate. And how does that actually function in our lives? Look again at the passage, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So John is encouraging these Jesus followers to not sin, to avoid sin, to fight sin. But he knows that the power of Satan's sin and death is still present. So he reminds the church, when you sin, because I know you will, you have an advocate. But what is an advocate? It was interesting during our catechism, we talked about a substitute. But the scriptures also define Jesus as our advocate. But what is an advocate? An advocate is someone who speaks on your behalf. So you don't have to speak. In this case, you have an advocate because of your sin, because of your lack, because of your weakness. This word advocate means helper. And interestingly enough, it is the same word used when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming and being our helper. But here, who does it say is our helper? It's not the Spirit, it's Jesus. The word is used for someone who speaks up in your favor when you're accused of something. Have you ever been accused? Have you ever felt that accusation, even from your own heart, from people I often imagine a lot of accusatory situations that I find myself in, oh, they're probably mad at me about this, or, oh, man, I really screwed this up at my job, or, oh, man, this person, they straight up said to me, like, dude, you're not doing this very good, or, you know what, you should change this over here. Have you ever felt that, that weight of accusation? And maybe it was something big that someone accused you of doing. Have you ever been found wanting, lacking, And you've had to give an account for yourself and your actions. In that moment, you probably would have given anything for someone to step in and say, oh no, that's on me. That's not on them. That's on me. That's what an advocate does. But what kind of an advocate? Look again at the text. What does John say? We have a righteous advocate. Often the word righteous, and I'm even a pastor, I think this, it's just like a religious word, right? It just sounds like, oh, they just... Jesus Christ, advocate, he's righteous. Like, it just kind of feels like it's thrown in there, which is not true. But we don't really think about, what does this word righteous mean? 
Simply put, this is very simplified, to be righteous means that you take what is wrong and make it right. Make it just. So what does it mean that Jesus, the righteous, is your advocate? It means that your advocate, he's no cheapskate. He's no phony advocate. He's no second-rate advocate. He's no second-rate lawyer that you hire. It means he's the best of the best. He's the best you could get. The one who advocates for you and for me is the best advocate out there. So having Jesus Christ, the righteous, as your advocate means that he's done the work. He's done the due diligence. He's accomplished the justice where you have failed at justice. He has perfectly arrived at God's standard of obedience for you. That's why he can advocate for you. It is this righteous one who says to all of us, I'm going to advocate on your behalf. But how does that function in our lives? How does that actually change the way you think, live, operate? Is that just some fact that we remember? No. Let's talk about three specific areas where you need an advocate, where I need an advocate. Let's talk about when you sin. When you sin. When you give into sin, into temptation, teens out there, when you're selfish, when you get angry, when your parents ask you to do something that you don't want to do, when you lust after someone, maybe at your workplace, when you yell, get angry. What do you do after that? After you know, I have given into major sin right now. I have fallen short of what God has called me to. You probably feel like crap. Probably know that you're guilty. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. This is what John says. In the midst of that, look at your advocate. In the face of your sin, having just committed it, whether it is lust, whether it is anger, whether it is longing for things that God hasn't given you, in the midst of that, not after, in the midst of that, look at your advocate. Look at the one who already said, I'm going to die so your sin won't make you die. Look at the one who said, when you face temptation and even give into it, I'm still going to be your friend. Look at the one who says, when you sin, I'm not walking out on you. I'm going to be there with you in your sin. Friends, you've got to hear this today. If Jesus is your advocate, that means God's not mad at you. I think a lot of us need to hear that today. I think some of you online watching this need to hear that reality. God is not mad at you. He can't be. Ladies, God's not mad at you. Men, he's your advocate. He's not mad at you. Even in the face of sin, your advocate has not stopped doing his job. Look at the cross. See your advocate there. When you sin and you know you're in the guilty seat, your advocate comes and says, I got this. I got this. The reality of our advocacy means the sinner 
is always welcomed. Confession is always a celebration because we have an advocate. So that's when we sin. What about when you suffer, though? What about when you suffer? How does having an advocate in your suffering actually change the way you think and live and operate? When we face suffering of loss, of deprivation, having to wait for something, wondering when God will answer. If we're honest with ourselves, and we can just fully admit this, we often don't really believe God is who he says he is or who we claim he is. We often have a really crappy view of God. Really crappy view of God. And often we realize that when we suffer. We imagine him as if he's, you know, up in heaven, and as if he's just ready to pounce on us when we blow it. As if he's just ready to, ah, see, you sinned, I'm going to get you now. That's why when we sin, we say, oh, well, it's probably because I blew it back there, so God's just doing this to me, or oh, God's not giving me this, or oh, wow, I've got to face this suffering. It's probably because I'm not a very faithful Christian. Friends, that's not how an advocate works. But let's admit it. We often think like that, as if God is just up there ready to just, just waiting for us to blow it. Friends, what kind of a God is that? If we're honest, that's how we are. That's not how God is. That doesn't sound like an advocate who's for you. When you're at your lowest, if we realize that Jesus is our advocate, always taking our case before the presence of the Father, how will that change the way you suffer? You'd be able to say, Jesus, I really don't feel like you're my advocate right now. It really doesn't seem like that. But somehow this suffering is going to prove that you are. Jesus, I don't want to believe that you're a crappy advocate, but it sure feels like it. Jesus, as an advocate, you know what this feels like right now, to wonder if God has left me or is punishing me, or is abandoning me. Jesus, can you help me right now? In the face of this suffering, the face of this waiting, the face of these questions that I don't have answers to, are you still my advocate? Jesus, my suffering does not disprove the fact that you're still for me. Friends, this is what an advocate does when it's functioning in your life, when you're walking through suffering, when you're walking through hard seasons of life, when you're walking through pressures being put on you. Let's consider one more area. How does having an advocate affect your relationships? This one's fun. If we have someone who has already put our case before the Father, who is committed to our true good, which we see on his death, who has already stood up for you and defended you. Why does it matter so much if you're right all the time in all your relationships? Why does it matter so much that someone might not understand you perfectly? 
Why does it matter so much that someone might not do things the exact way you think they need to be done? Friends, think about your relationships. Think about relationships with your parents or your in-laws or your siblings or your spouse. Those are often the hardest ones. Or your friends or your missional community or your coworkers. If you have an advocate, you don't always have to be right. You don't always have to win. You can peaceably listen. Do you know why? Because someone else already fought on your behalf. You don't always have to get the last word in. You don't always have to make sure that you're right. I just want to make sure that everyone understands me. It's okay if they don't. It really is okay if they don't. Check this out. If you have an advocate, you can love people who even disagree with you. Whether it's about things in life, whether it's about politics. Friends, you can love people who disagree with you because check this out. Ultimately and honestly, your own sin is the most damning thing about you. And the cross has already taken care of that. So everything else that we would disagree with people about can be trivial. It's okay. It really is okay if you can't convince them to either see your way or to side with you or to even hear you. All of your wearying labors to prove, to fight, to validate yourself. You already got an advocate. You don't need to worry so much about advocating for yourself. Because not only has he advocated for you, he's also given you his righteousness. He's given you his status as a perfect son or daughter. So what if you allowed that to go with you into your relationships, with people you're dating, with the person you're married to, with the person you hope to be married to, with relationships, with your friends, with your family, with your in-laws? That's intended to function in our life. The death of Jesus and Jesus being our advocate at the cross isn't just something we remember. It's something that changes the way we think. This is why, if you think about it, when the Apostle Paul, in all of his different letters, talks about how we're identified with Jesus in his death, because we carry these realities of his death with us into all of life. The fact that you have been crucified with Christ, that's something you hold on to. That's something you take with you into hard situations. That's something you take with you into conflict. That's something you hold on to in suffering. But that's just verse 1. That's just advocate. As we go to a close, I want us to think about John writes that Jesus is also our atoning sacrifice. He's our propitiation. So I want us to consider that as we go now to prepare to close. The reality of atoning sacrifice. How does that function in your life? How does that change the way you think? Well, we know, and we've even been hearing this in our catechism over the last couple of months, that if God really is, is as good as holy and perfect as he says he is, then what about sin? How can he deal with sin? If God really is good like he says he is, then sin's got to be dealt with somehow.
Because if he just allowed sin to be passed over and didn't really deal with it, then he's really not good. We should call him out on that. God, you've got to do something about this sin stuff. That's where God's wrath comes in. His punishment put out towards sin. Check this out. We don't think about this often. If God did not punish sin, he would cease to be who he was. It's that big of a deal. So something or someone has to absorb that punishment, has to take that punishment onto themselves. And again, your Bible might have this word in there, propitiation. It's kind of a fancy theological word. But a propitiation is the act of removing wrath, removing the need for punishment. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it into favor. And that's what John is saying you have. Listen to this quote by a really good Bible scholar who I was reading a lot this week. John emphasizes that Jesus Christ is not only our advocate who speaks in our favor in the presence of God, despite our sin, but he's also the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the first case, he appears as an advocate, almost like in court, but in the second, as a sacrificing priest in the temple. And as the author, John, will explain later in his letter, it was because of the Father's love that he sent his Son to be this atoning sacrifice. So this means that Jesus, as our advocate, has to be understood in relation to him being our atonement. The two have to go hand in hand. An advocate who speaks on our half, but then also secures the mercy that we need every day because he also is our propitiation. If you recall, in the story of God, think about the story that we often go through. Creation, what God has done. Bringing life out of nothing. Calling a people to himself. Mankind falling and turning the keys of life over to Satan. God still calls the people to himself. Think about Israel. Think about Egypt. Think about tabernacles and arcs of the covenant. All of that was dealing with the sin stuff. And what did God do? Yes, they'd sacrifice some lambs. They'd break necks and shed blood. Did all that deal with sin? No. It was passing over. Of sin. God chose to pass over sin, but sin was not dealt with yet. All those sacrifices were temporary. They were transient. They were never intended to really absolve people of guilt. They were never intended to fully be the punishment for sin. But now, since the righteous one was the propitiation, sin is done. Its power is gone. Wrath and punishment has been spent. Paul says in Romans, maybe you've read this, I never really understood this a whole lot. He says, we now have a revelation of God's righteousness. This is a new creation reality. Because sin is no longer passed over. Sin has been condemned. Sin's power has been emptied. So, what does that mean in our everyday life? How does that reality function 
in our everyday life. Friends, this means that your attempts at doing things to make yourself feel good are no longer needed. Your attempts at removing the stain and guilt you feel, they aren't necessary. The money you give to people or organizations because you feel bad, the privileges you think that you have that you want to work so hard to undo, why do you still act like wrath is directed at you? Why do you still act like punishment is going to come for you? It's already been removed. Your own self-hatred that maybe you even inflict on yourselves, whether through self-loathing or even through self-harm, can't you see that Jesus' death was already the ultimate infliction of punishment? This means, friends, some of you need to hear this, you can stop punishing yourself. Do you see your advocate? Do you see your atoning sacrifice? Friends, we often live our lives as if it's our blood, sweat, and tears that we try to atone or make right with our lives. But we completely miss the fact that Jesus already gave up his blood, sweat, and tears. So we didn't have to. If you begin to connect the pieces of this to your life, because again, I'm not going to cover every area of life. That's not what a sermon is supposed to do. You guys now take these realities and think about the areas of life where you do live as if you still have punishment. You do live as if, I've got to just make things right because of the bad things I've done. It's not calling us not to obey God. That's calling us to say, you no longer have to work to appease God. He's given you his son. He's given you your advocate. Friends, when we begin to connect this to our life, you want to know what happens? You become free. You become a person set free to actually know who God wants you to be. We are free people released from the cruel oppression of wrath. There is no wrath for us, but we act as if it's still coming towards us. I'm reminded of this scene in the Two Towers where King Theoden is finally released from the power of Saruman. Do you remember that scene when Gandalf comes in and Théoden has been under the demise of this sorcerer who's controlling him and Gandalf sets him free? And what does he say to him? He says, breathe the free air. Friends, when you realize Jesus is your atoning sacrifice, that's what's said over us. Breathe the free air. The new creation's not fully here yet we still are free. We are free. Friends, I hope this morning, and I've been praying for you all this week, that we would see the areas where we still live as if we're slaves. And we would realize that we have an advocate and that we have an atoning sacrifice. And I hope and pray, and would love to talk with you if you still are struggling to understand how this connects to your life. Please don't hesitate to ask me, ask someone that you're sitting next to, we want to see how the cross of Jesus functions in our life.